Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and I'm the director of the religion and society think tank Theos. This is a podcast about our public conversations, how we can talk better to those who disagree with us and what role the things that we hold sacred might play. In this episode, you'll hear me talking to Lois Lee, who is a sociologist at the University of Kent and will be the UK's first lecturer in secular studies. She leads the £2.3 million Understanding Unbelief Project. She studied history at Leeds and did her PhD in sociology at Cambridge. I had a really stimulating conversation with her about the range of non-religious beliefs, why, as an academic, she finds it really difficult to talk personally, and where she thinks public debates stand on belief and non-belief. I really hope you enjoy listening. question I ask everyone which I think might be more difficult for you than others for two reasons one is that it's personal and you are the first academic we've had on the podcast and therefore perhaps less comfortable with being personal and also because the concept of the sacred is something that I think you've studied in your work and comes up um, in lots of your academic career so uh, you will have lots of theory behind it that many people don't have when I speak about the sacred I'm probably speaking it in a very kind of budget way which is this sense of something that is a value or a principle in your life that you hold very dear and you see as central to your identity and that if someone offered you money to give up, that would feel somehow sacrilegious or offensive to do so. So what do you hold sacred? I'm very honoured to be the first academic, my goodness. Um, Yes, it is. It's a very strange question to be asked. Um, Partly, yes, I don't talk about myself personally or that's not the focus of what I'm doing in my work most of the time. But actually, it's a question I ask in my interviews with people. So my work has focused on um, non non religious people, people identify as non-religious in the UK, especially. Um, And as part of my interviews with them, I asked them about the sacred. Um, And it's quite sort of strange for for me to reflect on how weird it is. Have you never thought about it for yourself? I think, I mean, it's very odd. It's it's made me reflect a little bit on what I'm doing as an academic and the way in which I find it so surprising to have this question, be confronted by this question. So a very interesting exercise, but you're right. I do find it difficult to answer. I think I think actually there are two reasons I find it difficult to answer. So one is um, as a sociologist and one is as someone who also identifies as non-religious. And so there are different issues there. So as a sociologist... I'm really interested in the work of people like Gordon Lynch and um, other sociologists who work with the sacred as a concept. And they're doing so in a really sociological way. They work with uh, Emile Durkheim and these sort of big sociologists who have developed frameworks of thinking about uh, the sacred. But what they're arguing is that sacred values are normally so deeply ingrained, they're taken for granted. You almost can't tell what you hold sacred. Exactly. Exactly. So in a way, if I could say what they were, they may not be the sacred values. I think there's a little bit of complexity there, but there's an element of truth in that. So so Gordon's work looks at how we can find out about the sacred once it's been breached in some way. So that's when we see, so when we see some kind of moral panic or uprising or, you know, 
then we get a sense of, ah, okay, here were a set of values that people find uh, as as groups, but also as individuals um, that they're holding to be sacred. So that's when it becomes visible. So I think in a way, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask. Um, so I need to work out what I can prod <laughs> to see what feels wrong to you. Yeah, Please don't do that. <laughs> or, or ask Gordon to do a study of uh, me and my compatriots, people like me, whatever it might be. Um, I mean, that said, I think there are values I hold dear and I have some awareness of them. Um, but then as a non-religious person, I think that the difficulty arises in that uh, those kind of values, there isn't necessarily a forum in which they're being discussed. It's not an explicit part of my identity. It's not something that's explicitly um, raised in particular places where I might go to think about these things. Um, and I think there's a broader issue there about uh, the deinstitutionalization of religion. So um, religious beliefs may sustain uh, much more than going regularly to church does. Uh, and religious institutions, which provide a forum in which we at least get to reflect on those values to some degree. I'm not sure. They're definitely not being replaced by the same kinds of centralised institutions. This isn't to say there aren't yeah. lots of resources and things that touchstones, you know, from the books I read, the films I watch, the yeah. conversations I have with friends and yeah. so on. But it's much more decentralised. So you're saying there's not a kind of explicit narrative which you can easily tap into? Yeah, I'm not even sure there's encouragement f to pause mm. and reflect in the way that this podcast is doing. Um, it's not something that I'm being asked. Yeah. When I ask people in interviews, uh, yes, the kind of way that they navigate that idea is um, maybe to turn to um, my children, my family and yeah. so on, which I've, I've heard in other podcasts, sometimes podcasts you say, I'm going to bracket that out yeah, because I know I know you feel like that, you know, and, you know that's sort of given. So people do turn to that. Um, but apart from that, they often really just struggle yeah. with the question. I don't, I mean, definitely what I think is not happening is that those people don't have values that yeah. they hold very dear, yeah. um, but that they might not have the language yeah. or be used to articulating it, yeah. which I think is quite an interesting phenomenon. So I'm going to be mean and push you and say, make your best guess because you have studiously avoided offering anything and it, you know, no one's going to hold you to it. It's not a test. But what, what is the thing that comes to mind is perhaps your most likely sacred value? Yes. Uh, no, that's, I didn't mean to be evasive, I promise. Um, just came naturally. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose I'm a, a sort of liberal democrat and there are values of autonomy and um, equality that I hold very dear. I think related to being an academic, I really value um, critical scientific knowledge. To some extent, my sense of why equality matters is I think there are very good grounds to think that that works out well for everybody and that those grounds are something that can be substantiated by good, rigorous research. Um, so I think there's a, a kind of value there about um, rational knowledge um, that I think I do hold dear. Let's get a bit more personal. Uh, again, I'm, I warned you that this might be uncomfortable. Uh, and a, another question that I ask most people is, is to really, because the kind of theory behind the podcast is that we come to the positions that we come to, not solely, although for lots of us, you know, and me particularly, are fairly geeky and we like to read and think and use our brains. Um, but both because of my kind of... Um, my, my underlying anthropology, which is very much not solely mine, uh, understanding where people are situated, where they come from, the stories that they're embedded in, you know, the social groups they're embedded in, it really helps us understand why people might have come to perspectives that are different from us and therefore build empathy for how we can understand them. So um, tell us a bit about your 
childhood really um what was formative in your childhood and was there a kind of spiritual or political or religious uh, background to it yeah i mean it, that is relevant i think to doing the kind of research i do that we to, that is something i would reflect on and think about the kind of assumptions that are coming into my work so um so i'm used to thinking about that although not often being asked about it um but so my background um i grew up in north london in islington and um the 2001 census um, revealed that Islington was in the top 10 most non-religious wards in um, England and Wales. That's mm. what the census was for, um, that part of the census dealt with. So that gives a yeah, sense of the environment I, I, in the top 10. Yeah. Um, top 10 includes Camden as well as Islington, yeah. so two North London boroughs, but also um, Brighton, right. Bristol, Norwich. Yeah. Um, I think, although that could have been the 2011 census, that there's an area in North Wales that comes up quite highly. And that's interesting because it's slightly different from the sort of um, profile of the other areas I've just mentioned, yeah. which are sort of high, yeah, high student numbers, liberal arts cultures and so on and so forth. So you, there's a sort of common thread. It, actually, those areas fell out of the top 10 <laughs> Um in the 2011 census, Islington and Camden. It wasn't because there was a decline in non-religion per se, but it grew faster mm. elsewhere. Um, and equally, London's quite interesting in terms of the mix of um, non-religious identities, but there's a lot of religious vitality, um, as I'm sure you know, in, in London, um, often associated with immigrant groups and so on. So I grew up in this context in which not only that region, but also um, my demographic within that region um, was very non-religious. That's that's very much the norm. Um, my parents were non-religious. So I would think of myself as second generation non-religious now. So my grandparents, I think were all religious um, or all were, uh, but my parents weren't. And so I fall into that group who tended to not really think or identify strongly in relation to religion at all. Um, some of my works talked a lot about people who identify as indifferent to religion and kind of um, chipping away at that and seeing if th if that if that really is what they are. Um, but I probably was, that was probably my orientation when I was growing up. Um, I had some interest. I think I knew about someone at school who was at church and I, I asked to go to church. I went to Sunday school for a short time, um, probably when I was about six or seven, and that fell by the wayside, which was sociologically what was likely to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, since then, I... I uh, Never identified as interested in religion, uh, but kept writing essays at university and so on that said, oh, OK, well, both religious beliefs and identities, but also non-religious beliefs and identities are relevant to understanding this, that and the other. Um, and eventually I had to sort of admit that I was really quite interested and <laughs> now work in a religious studies department and have you know, worked on religion for uh, well over a decade now. And why do you think it interests you? Well, I think it's the sort of palpable impact it has on the world. What, one of the interests for me is about um, precisely non-religious um, uh, people within uh, the, the impact that being non-religious also has, which I think has been less recognised historically. Um, yeah, one of my first big pro sort of engagements was my undergraduate uh, thesis, which was I was a Doing, uh, did a, my BA in history and I wrote about the historian R.H. Tawney who's associated with Christian socialism and compared his socialism with um, the Webbs, the founders of LSE who uh, Sidney Webb was atheist, um, Beatrice was agnostic in the sense of being doubtful and unsure I think um, and I my my focus was on their political beliefs but I felt you couldn't um, 
understand some of the important differences if you didn't understand those differences. And equally, at the on the other side, one of the main arguments I made was that the language made it seem as though their political beliefs were much more different than they really were. They were framed differently, but actually there's a lot of commonality. And I questioned uh, a division that's been made um, in political theory and intellectual thought between this strict division between Christian socialism and what's called uh, mechanical socialism. So that's the kind of way in which I was went to do a study of political beliefs, but felt religious beliefs, but also non-religious beliefs yeah. were highly relevant. Where do you think things are in the academy? Because certainly... Ten years ago, when I was working at the BBC and talking to academics, there was a sense of those like you who were did see the relevance of religion and its kind of salience for lots of the big questions were uh, frustrated that there seemed like quite uh, a strong hostility to even considering it amongst the broader academic community. It was something in the past that didn't, you know, what, you know, move on. Why bother being literate in theology or why bother understanding um the lived experience of Muslims, for example. Do you think that has changed? And if it has, what, what might have helped? There's sort of two answers to that. One is that there has been a, a big growth of interest, particularly around um, Islam. And, and, that, and that's a very particular story that has very positive and very negative um, aspects to it. And I think in a way is a sort of separate phenomenon. At the same time, um, I think... I think what's very exciting to see, um, and it's something that I've thought about and argued for, I guess, in my work, is um, a way of broadening out how we think about religion so that we can include um, the non-religious within that. And what that does is show non-religious people in the academy, um, of which there are many, that they have a stake in religious studies, as it were. So... There are different ways at the moment. There's a lot of kind of experimentation about how best to frame this broader category uh, within which we can see the religious and the non-religious as being uh, part of. So worldview is one that comes up um, quite a lot. Um, I talk about the existential di dimension to life, so existential beliefs, which we all have, um, but also existential practices and rituals, which again, increasing research with the non-religious also show they have as well as religious people. I'm going to stop you there because existential is a reasonably jargony term that everyone will probably have heard, but one is used in different ways in different disciplines and two is quite hard to get a handle on. So in your simplest possible language, yeah. what does what well, do you I mean by I it? And I think I use the term very simply as well. So I've, um, you know, philosophy colleagues that would use the term much, much more complicated ways than I do. Um, I use it just uh, to mean what's sometimes referred to as engagement with ultimate questions. Um, so those sort of big questions of life, so big questions about our existence, um, in which we think about where we come from, where that existence begins, where it ends, what that means for, for, for us as we go about the business of existing. Um and that's about that's about it. So our existential beliefs concern those sorts of questions. Right. But as a good kind of sociologist, uh, religious studies scholar, I'm aware that it's not just about belief. It's about practice, rituals yeah. and so on. Um, so I'd also talk about existential practices and rituals, yeah. um, of which an obvious example might be um, a humanist wedding ceremony, yeah. which is equivalent to the kinds of um, existential rituals that we'd see yeah. uh, associate with religious traditions. Yeah. We're just going to take a short break to catch up with the Theos team. In the Theos office with Ben Ryan, who, amongst many other things, has been working on some initial 
writing around the subject of refugees, particularly for Refugee Week, but in an ongoing way. Uh, ben, tell me, what made you want uh, to bring this subject to the fore in Theos's work? There's a couple of factors in that. The first is simply that... Uh, Refugees are such an important part of our current sort of political public debate, um, partly prompted by Windrush, where those, of course, weren't refugees, but that nonetheless really raised the profile of the way in which we treat people who come to this country, particularly asylum seekers and refugees. But also, I think, because the church and Christian groups in particular have done a huge amount of work in this area. I mean, whenever you're doing kind of research on what groups are doing to support refugees, whether that's, or asylum seekers, whether that's in terms of finding them housing, helping them apply for asylum, it's hard to escape the fact that a lot of the actors in this area just are faith groups. And why do you think that is? Well, there's obviously a, a kind of theological command to to look after strangers and, and to have kind of compassion for your neighbour and for others. So that, that, I think, is a part of it. But also, this is just an area which there just aren't many actors in. Um, and some of these organisations are very old. So things like the Jes- Jesuit Refugee Service, this is a very old organisation which has been working in this area just a very long time. Um, it also helps, of course, that faith groups are by their nature international um, and that people who come from abroad are much more likely to be religious than people who live here are. So there's a kind of natural source for those people if they're going to look to help or what are the structures that they know of that are supportive well they they tend to be faith groups and from the blogs and the uh, organizations that you're in touch with what is the message about the current state of kind of refugee and asylum policy in the uk is it in good state bad state what could what could uh, be done better I think it's in a lamentable state. And particularly um, when we wrote the book Fortress Britain, which came out this year, there's a there's a fascinating chapter from Anna Rowlands, a theologian up in Durham, um, who is writing particularly about the use of destitution uh, in asylum policy. So effectively, the way in which we treat asylum seekers is to force them either into detention or to destitution. Those are the two routes available to them. Um, this is why we have these enormous immigration and removal centres, which simply incarcerate people without charge, sometimes for years, separate from their family, separate from any support network, or it forces them into destitution. It forces them to seek... Asylum seekers are not allowed to apply for jobs, for example, which puts them at the mercy of people traffickers. It puts them uh, at a huge disadvantage in terms of public perception. It looks like they're scroungers because they can't work. That's the law. What... uh would be the the first thing or perhaps um, the one thing, if you had the power to just do one thing, that you would change or perhaps the voices of the people in the sector would change, do you think? They had changed the entire system. But I think as, as an initial first step, um, I actually think, and this, this might sound first, but access to the labour market is going to be so important in providing that dignity, allowing people to stand on their own two feet, allowing people to have agency for themselves and not simply be seen as as recipients or, or put at the mercy of, of crime and, and of trafficking. Allowing asylum seekers to work would be quite easy. There's willingness to do it and also would really help people to to work for themselves. And for those listening who uh, don't have much access to the levers of policy, perhaps, or um, are not sure where to begin with helping kind of serve and stand alongside these human beings in often desperate situations, where could they start? I think a good place to start would be looking up um, community sponsorship schemes. Uh, There's a host of these up and down the country now. Uh, Again, mostly, but not exclusively run by faith groups. Um, It it varies a bit depending on what council you're in, exactly what they look like. But there's some fantastic work going on with groups taking people in. You could also look at some of the uh, charities and organisations which are doing really good advocacy work in this area. Um, I mentioned Jeff, the Jesuit Refugee Service. I think they're doing brilliant stuff. But also some of the more secular ones, the, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Um, we have an we had an event on July the 2nd, which involved uh, Satbir Singh, who's the head of that organisation. They, again, are, are doing some fantastic work, lobbying, advocating, really working hard on behalf of people in vulnerable situations. Ben, thank you so much for speaking to me. Now back to our conversation. I'm 
going to be mean again. You talk about you've talked about uh, you know the existential element of non-religious lives. What what is that for you? What does your non-religious identity look like? Feel like? Um, do you? incorporate rituals into your life? How do you um, live out your non-religious identity? Again, I find that, so I spend a lot of my time thinking about the non-religious identities of others and find it very difficult to think about when it comes to myself. Um, I think in terms of my own existential beliefs when it comes to those sort of propositional statements, probably quite atheistic and naturalistic, but I'm not sure that that's the most important thing for understanding where I get meaning from and so on. Um, I talk with people who I describe as agnostics, and I I mean that in quite an expansive sense. So, um, you know, the strong agnostic view is we can't know about existential matters. Okay, we say can't know about the existence of God, but I think we can broaden that and say, so we really can't know ultimately where we come from and where we go. Um, but I think there's a broad ethic um, associated with that. That's very, that there's a sort of strong emphasis on what we don't know um, and how kind of wonderful that can be. That's that there's opportunities there for mystery or comedy, enjoying the absurdity of it all and so on. And I think if I think about that broader um, existential culture, that's where I associate myself more strongly. Um, Rather than in a, a more traditionally kind of strong atheistic kind of, cl- it's a closed question. Yeah. I mean, I think, so the people I talk with, um, exhibit a range of existential beliefs and cultures. And one thing I think we really do need to pay much closer attention to is that diversity of belief. Um, You know, people like the New Atheist, Richard Dawkins and so on have been really important for opening up uh, conversations, um, but they clearly don't represent um, the huge numbers of people who are non-religious and non-believers. In fact, in my research, the kind of identity, I'm an atheist, but not a Richard Dawkins type atheist is one I encounter all the time. And it sort of uh, indicates the way in which Richard Dawkins, the new atheist phenomenon has been quite positive for discourse in, in some ways in that without Richard Dawkins, I don't know how that person would identify themselves at all. So it gives them something to say, and then they can open up and tell you what they mean by that and where they're coming from. But yes, I don't identify with a kind of more rationalist sort of tradition of atheism that possibly is the one that comes to mind when we think about non-believers first and foremost. I'm not sure it's the most common one. So um, one of the, in fact, uh, one of the previous episodes was with a guy called Tom Chivers, who is the, um, who's a science writer. And it was fascinating for me because it's like, I'd never seen, I'd never seen a real one in the wild, (laughs) you know, the, the, uh, getting up close with a with a human who I, I know a bit and like and enjoy and what I've got lots in common with, who is at least attempting to to square the circle of a purely physicalist worldview, you know, in which there is no uh there is no free will and there is, you know, his his bar for evidence for anything is so insanely high. I don't know how he functions. Um and it it was really telling that that might be the caricature of that we have of atheists, but actually he's quite unusual. Um now uh, wind, I'm going to wind back a little bit. You know, you had this experience with Sunday school when you were a young child. Uh, because of the work that you do, it feels like you're probably bumping up against uh, more traditionally religious people quite often and uh, are reasonably kind of literate with, um, with, with what other people are doing. What is it for you that keeps you non-religious? Or that... That might be even a, the wrong way of framing the question, yeah, but... It is who I am. I mean, I, I probably am close um, to that physicalist view in the sense that... Well, I guess as a sociologist, I'm very, very strongly aware of the constraints, the things that constrain um, our choices, which I think are are highly limited. Um, also, as a sociologist, I'm very aware that our beliefs are um, 
something that we develop intersubjectively in conversation with the people around us and so on. Um, and, and those reflect my background that I've talked about. So I'd say a large majority of the people I'm surrounded by in my personal life are also non-religious. Um, and there's no, why would that change? You know, there's a lot of philosophical richness. I mean, I mean, I'm sort of interested to know why, why you think that could change. So yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, it's not to say that I wouldn't learn from people who have different beliefs and be very engaged with that. Um, and that the beliefs I have haven't changed at all. That would yeah. be ridiculous to yeah. say. Um, but the kind of broad outlook I have is sort of just who I am. Yeah. And there's no, there's, in fact, I think I mean, what I really like about this this podcast and the sort of spirit of exchange and understanding and so on, which I, I really, really commend and think is a very good thing. I think one thing that's going to um, support that sort of aim is less of um, one thing I encounter a lot in my field are people saying what other people believe. Um, and you're a much safer ground when you say what you believe. And yeah. so in that way, I think it's good to ask me yeah. personal questions and yeah. so on. But I do encounter this where people say that religious people must be absolutist in this way because that's you. Or but for the non-religious too, that um, non-religious people must be suffering because there's this terrible existential whole of of meaning and you know I come across this quite often um I don't experience that at all and neither do I think there's very much evidence to suggest that's generally the case Mm. though of course everything's ambivalent and people struggle with their beliefs at different moments of time maybe I'm Mm. lucky that I haven't um no, that's really that's a a really helpful thing to say because it's one of one things I was going to ask you is what would you hope that religious people would better understand about the non-religious and I think one of the reasons we do this podcast is what comes up again and again with the guest is how social we are. And actually most of the people who define as non-religious, who I talk to, are very embedded in non-religious communities. And most of the religious people I talk to are very embedded in religious communities. So you have these self-reinforcing things whereby it's easy for narratives that are perhaps sort of slightly half-baked about each other to just go without comment. And you are right. And I think sometimes I assume this, that because I find such existential satisfaction in my faith because it feels like the fact that God exists and loves me and I can be in a relationship with him, although, you know, him is slightly problematic, um, it meets such a deep need that everyone must feel that need. Um, but uh, it's really helpful to hear that, that actually that you don't come across that so much in your research. Well, I mean, there's diversity there, but certainly personally, I don't. I, I have, I think I have some, a need that's very similar, um, but I think it is met in different ways. Um, and I think it's easy. So what I don't think we should do is deny the differences. I think those are, that's really important, but I think there's a tendency to overstate the differences. Um, so we have, so one attempt to soften the idea that you know, atheists and theists are poles apart is to say, oh, no, there's a spectrum. And I know lots of people who use that idea and it's very well intentioned to say we're not as different as all that. But actually, I think the idea of a spectrum is also really problematic um, because we'd have to be so reductive about what we're putting on that spectrum. It just tells us so little about people. Um so if we, so there's a kind of shift in sociology, but I think in kind of broader discussion from being concerned with uh, non-religious people in terms of what they don't have and being much more interested in what they do have. So whether it's beliefs, instead of thinking who and why don't they believe, um, there's a real move at the moment. It's a big part of the research project that I'm um, involved with in the moment, at the moment, the Understanding Unbelief Programme, to look at what they do believe in 
And that gives leads a much to a much more rich picture about those beliefs. I've already talked about a few some of the differences between kind of broadly agnostic, um, a very sort of trying to say something quite rich about what it means to be agnostic, and the differences between with that orientation and rationalist humanism. And there are non-rationalist forms of humanism as well that are much more sort of centered on social justice questions and so on. There's so much diversity and I think cultural richness within the non-religious area that at some point you start thinking why am I talking about this as an area that's separate from um you know if we've if we sort of say there are lots of different worldviews and existential cultures out there I'm not sure that the theism or atheism is the most important feature of them um so we could place them on a spectrum according to that but I I think in the end that's going to give us such a thin picture about all of those beliefs and if you think about religious cultures You'd never think it was helpful to place those on a spectrum. Yeah. You know, possibly centuries ago we might have done and yeah. now we'd be very critical of, of yeah. that. Um, so I think if we just use that same logic of saying there are very, all these diverse um, belief systems, yeah. no point placing those on a spectrum. It also really helps um, think about cultural exchange instead of, instead of thinking about, you know, it's such a kind of challenge with this spectrum um, framework to understand the way in which, for example, Christianity, I grew up in Islington, as I said, my grandparents were Christian. I have some kind of connection with Christianity that I don't have with some other religions. Yeah. And what, what can too often happen is a kind of tug of war thing where um, interested parties are battling it out to say, here's an individual, X or Y shows that they're really religious or they're really non-religious. Yeah. And I just think it's fine to say... I generally identify as non-religious. That identity has some meaning for me in the in the world as it stands. It might be that that kind of weird negative and relative identity will disappear over time. If, for example, we talk much more about non-religious beliefs and we get a better language for, you know, maybe if in 10 years from now, if you said, what's your beliefs, I wouldn't struggle so much yeah. to say, you know, I think we really are lacking a kind of accessible language yeah. for talking about meaning systems yeah. and so on. So that might change, but... Um, my being non-religious and my connecting with Christianity and probably uh, Protestantism in particular are not, they're not, uh, there's no concern there for me. But what I don't want anyone to do is say, ah, oh, well, you're really religious because they're denying those other beliefs that I'm saying matter to me. Yeah. And neither do I think it's very helpful for them to say, well, that connection with a particular religious background undermines your claims that you're non-religious because yeah. that also, you know, they're, they're both part of who I am. We do seem to have that in our public debates, don't we? This sort of gotcha culture yeah, yeah. where we use where someone's coming from to undermine their argument, which um, I, I really struggle with this because, as you know, I'm sort of pushing people to be more personal because I, because of this this sense that the human who is making the argument is important. Um, but neither do I want that. I want that to build kind of greater vulnerability and transparency and self-reflection and humility, but not be well, because you said that you feel this, therefore yeah. I, I don't believe you. And I, re I really don't know how to square that circle, the kind of sense of um, what I think we have in lots of our public debates, almost too much focus on emotion and too much just being prepared to be shrill and horrible and nasty to each other. And, and the main emotion there is self-righteous, self-righteous rage, you know, is not letting ourselves feel scared or vulnerable. Um, and then at the other end, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, is academic discourse, which sometimes seems to me as an outsider, as almost pseudo-rationalist, as trying to deny the kind of personal embeddedness. I know actually in good practice, academics will reflect internally, but as you say, in terms of how they talk to each other, the only time I really see it is when someone's holding it against someone rather than as a, a constructive thing. So given what you know about our kind of social embedded um, epistemology and, you know, 
where do you think academic debates, academic, you know, public academic debates are, given as we know they are human beings having them, even when sometimes they're pretending that they're not? Yeah, that's quite challenging. I mean, to some extent, um, as a qualitative sociologist, so, I, you know, talking in great detail with people, um, and there's a close affinity with that work and anthropology and ethnographic methods. Um, in this area, more than others, there's quite a strong awareness of our own position as a researcher and what that might bring. Um, And I think in the study of religion and non-religion, I think maybe it's similar to politics in that we do know that there is, that we all have come to these discussions with sort of strong beliefs of our own or just beliefs of our own. Um, And it's something I've, I am conscious of to some extent, it comes up as a um, issue of legitimacy that um, in, in media discussions, I'm often asked what I believe in a way that's just to um, contextualise what I'm going to say and probably try and invalidate it on those grounds, which is one reason I'm maybe a bit cagey about um, talking about it um, and appreciate being asked in a way where I don't feel like that's what's going to happen. Um, But it it has mattered a lot to me in... So I was one of the kind of... uh, There has been a big growth of research in non-religious populations, as you might expect, because non-religious populations are very, very large. Um, So over the last sort of 10 years, there's been a big growth in that area. And a lot of my work's done very kind of, um, you know, structural things to support that work. Like um, as one of the uh, academics who set up the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network or the Understanding Unbelief programme I'm working on now involves... um, 22 research teams working around the world trying to kind of really uh, get at some of the texture of what it means to be a quote-unquote unbeliever around the world and not just in pockets of um, the UK and the US where lots of researchers um, focused on. And in order to do that, it's been quite important to me, at least I've valued that I know, um, I don't know the beliefs of all the researchers involved in work, but I know the beliefs of several people I work closely with. And those teams have always been a mix of religious and non-religious um, perspectives of different kinds. Um, and I'm very conscious that that's helped with the work and the kind of discussion we have about the work. Um, so again, I've maybe had a slightly more positive uh, experience of yeah. how the personal and the academic relate one of the things I have sometimes found difficult um, is the sense that religion is a category, that religious beliefs is a different category. And one of the things I appreciate your uh, your work and the work of others studying unbelief or non-religion is, um, is in some ways putting them on the same playing field as a perspective, a way of seeing the world, a set of lenses. You know, some people would just use the phrase worldview, which I don't particularly love, but um, and particularly in this, and it came up really clearly when a few years ago, um, Nick Spencer, our research director, wrote a book called um, Atheism, the Origin of the Species, which was, you know, I think a really helpful study of the way atheism has worked out depending on the political context it's in. So French atheism is a very different flavour to American atheism because of the political context in which it grew up in than British atheism, for example. So, you know, he talks about atheisms. Um, and obviously what you've got more recently is John Gray coming out with his seven types of atheism. But we got quite a few comments at the time that um, a Christian think tank couldn't be writing about atheism, <laughs> which was obviously slightly irritating in that so much work is so much is written about religion by those who don't hold religious beliefs, um, which is more of a comment than a question. Um, but uh, do you think we're getting to a slightly more kind of humble sense of uh, there not being any such thing as neutral? I, mean, I think that though those kind of controversies relate to, um, you know, once burned, twice shy, that we all know that those kinds of power play um, that can go on and people are sensitive to them. Um, and, and as I say, I think there's... 
especially at the moment, we might kind of get beyond it. There is real value to letting people speak for themselves and uh, making space for them to be heard, um, which I think this podcast is a very good example of. Um, and I think we need more spaces for that in order for us all to get over our defensiveness um, because we're all so used to reading about ourselves from other people's perspectives in ways um, that we can neither relate to nor perhaps like. So unpack that for me because that's the phrase you was really helpful that the 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 power plays and I think you've put your finger on something really important there that actually one of the reasons it's so hard to talk across difference is we don't trust the motives um is can you give any examples of where you see that happening? You know, don't feel like you need to name names, but yeah. just to help flesh out for the list of what, what we mean by that. I mean, I think there are real practical issues about access to resources that at the moment, because we're still, I think there's a massive transition going on in academic research and, but in society more broadly, that is doing exactly what I'm talking about, taking uh, the non-religious seriously, but also seeing the similarities between the non-religious and the religious. And it's a massive and complicated transition. And it follows a very long, long, long history, a very justified history of seeing um, existential cultures or worldviews or whatever we're going to call them as primarily religious. So we've had a very religion-centred way of thinking, which reflects the nature of human history. But part of that transition um, means that we're at a moment where there are large non-religious populations who don't necessarily have access to some of the resources that religious people do. Uh, But equally, I mean, I think this cuts both ways. I think that one of the best ways to think about it is there's this very strong asymmetry in how we think about what it means to be religious and what it means to be non-religious. And both... Both of those camps, and this is the only time I'm going to use this term, but it's about access to resources, I think both benefit from that which means they cling on um, as well as suffer from it. So on the one hand, you have, um, you know, an argument that uh, and an awareness that religions offer really rich existential culture and resources that um, provide people actually with um, support for developing meaning systems and so on, but also practical support, you know, for people in their local communities and so on and so forth. Um, There isn't the equivalent of that. It's just not the, the sort of same Um, uh, thing. Or if we think about education spaces, we have religious studies and there's constant discussion about how we bring non-religious viewpoints into those spaces and awareness that we need to do that. Until they're there, what we have is education that that tells us a lot about religious traditions and isn't telling us anything about non-religious traditions. And those are real real imbalances of resources. Um, But equally on the other side, the non-religious, who are so large in number, um, and often occupy the kind of uh, what it means to be normal now. So they could, although they, you know, might, you know, might sort of quite happily say, no, I don't have this rich cultural um, resource that to turn to, but, you know, I'm liberated from that and I'm more rational. And that's the kind of, that's one particular argument that emerges. Um, everyone can use this sense that we're different to their interests. And I think ultimately it's in nobody's interests to do it. And it fuels this power play because there are real resources to be won. There are, you know, seats in our government, there are um, spaces in cultural spaces and education and so on and so forth um, at stake. I, I, you know, my view is that it's absolutely in everybody's interest to recognise those spaces um, more broadly and inclusively. um, And that, you know, possibly this is like, my optimistic rose-tinted glasses, but the vision yeah. I have is that if we 
say we, you know, say religious studies is very, very effectively opened up to non-religious perspectives, and we all see ourselves as having a stake in those conversations. The the need for the battle mm. really falls away. That's the hope. That is incredibly helpful, Lois, because it feels like um, I've just heard a story that I know well from another character's perspective. In that, I think for most religious people in the UK. They feel like the asymmetry works the other way, um, which is probably what's fueling this, isn't it? Um, that actually we do have the slightly strange historical thing about establishment, which I can see why I can really see why it irks people. But beyond that, most at least I'm going to speak very specifically, most Christians feel like vast swathes of public space are, are secular and not just secular, but usually unintentionally culturally slightly hostile to them. So um that rather than feeling like they're kind of, you know, sitting on the, le- the legacy of privilege from the past, that actually they're, they're quite often quite unsettled and feeling quite vulnerable and quite unsure whether they're welcome and where to take their place in the world. And you know, this does play out in things like resources in that we speak to a lot of faith-based charities who are repeatedly turned down for funding um, because they because of their Christian ethos. So many of them have this internal struggle about do we just sort of, you know... Um, uh, downplay that de-emphasize that or do we rely on other funding sources and then they might end up going to you know big christian trusts in america which are prepared to fund them whatever um so i think it's really important just to flag up that actually both the religious and non-religious in different contexts part of the reason they sometimes sound angry is that they're a bit scared no i i agree i I totally agree i think that this uh, focused on the way in which both sides can benefit from the current arrangements Mm. but i think both sides have genuine grievances um and you only need to feel slightly threatened in some way for the grievance to become the much stronger driving force um it's something yeah, it's something I argue in my book is that this I think ultimately it's an asymmetry. I don't think there really are winners or losers here. They're yeah. just that well, everyone's a winner and everyone's yeah. a loser. Yeah. And um no, I mean I think you can sort of that's I sort of think of that as the um the thought for the day problem. So we have in a media space that is very non religious, very secular to agree, but mm. to a degree, but it does uh, there are sort of um humanist and other non-religious ethics that do get quite a lot of uh, that interwoven into our kind of mainstream media spaces um uh, in a very you know very widespread way and then we have these designated spaces for religious discussion um i think that that illustrates the way in which we're all winners and losers so what you have is this cordoned off space that in which the non-religious don't appear to have a stake so that there's an area of programming where, that they might go to listen to the views of others but they know they're never going to hear their views included um but equally from the religious point of view you say well look we've got this these spaces and we need these spaces because mm. they're a broader you know we're not sure we have space in the kind of mainstream um so there's a problem both ways and what again this is like uh, possibly there are many steps joyful steps that may or may not take place but my sort of sense is that if we open up thought for the day religious education so on and so forth which actually is happening religious education is one of the most um interesting spaces i think for engaging with non-religion at the moment um something that i've learned a lot from actually um but opening up those spaces for non-religious people i think is helpful because then they realize they have a stake in mm. the same things that religious people have a stake mm. in and this might kind of um, lead them to question the very strong sense of otherness that they might otherwise have, which in turn might mean that there are more legitimate spaces for religious voices within spaces that they may not now feel that they have a legitimate yeah. voice. There are a lot of very skipping and field steps yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the very least, I think recognising 
well, it's the ethic of um, equality and how much we have in common really yeah. underlying it, but a much, much greater awareness of what we have in common, I think yeah. it will be helpful. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one final question. Um, and again, it's a personal one. So you, for you as a non-religious person, what could, uh, when, when you encounter religious people, whether in person or in public debates, um, is there anything that they, that you would love them to stop doing or anything that you would love them to do in order to feel like those encounters are more constructive and more human? I, I think I've probably touched on it. I think the most damaging thing, and this goes definitely, you know, whatever your perspective, I think it's damaging, is um, speaking for other people, making assumptions about their beliefs. Um, I think that because... I've experienced it happening and not disliking it. And I also think that as a sociologist where I'm trying to listen to what people are saying and one of the most interesting and exciting things that happens in sociology is them telling you something you had no idea they were going to say. Um, I think that's the very a very helpful way of having conversations. And um, I've been fortunate to be part of a, um, a very um, nice project uh, uh, that led to a book that's called um, Religion and Atheism Crossing the Divide and involves... Um, people from different perspectives. Um, generally, I think really trying to listen, not to agree, mm-hmm. but to listen. And I think that is most effective when that conversation avoids anybody saying, this is what you believe, let me tell you. Yeah, and here's yeah. the problem with what you believe. And is much absolutely most successful when it's people saying what they believe. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a very kind of wonderful project to be a part of. And it's part of a, um, a move, I think, to open up what have been interfaith conversations, uh, interfaith groups are often more interested in engaging with non-religious people, but I think there still is a sense in my experience um, of the non-religious as ultimately just more different mm. than someone from a different religious yeah. community. I don't think that's true. I think there are religious groups and non-religious groups or perspectives that have much more in common with each other than, you know, two religious, you know, there's just a lot more potential there's difference but i don't think it follows that religious uh, non-religious divide um in the way we tend to think really but yes listening seems focus on listening it's always a good place to start and on that note uh thank you so much for coming to talk to me today Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd love to hear what you think. Please do get in touch via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved, what you hated, and who you think we should talk to next. We'd also be really grateful if you'd rate and review us wherever you get your podcast and spread the word to your friends. Thanks very much.